Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Kevin Starr to the podcast. Kevin is the founder of the Malago Foundation, which funds early stage social entrepreneurs devoted to maximum impact at scale in developing countries. Kevin set up the Reiner Arnhold Fellows Program in 2003 to apply Malago's principles and tools to help social entrepreneurs turn good ideas into lasting change at scale and 2016 set up the Henry Arnhold Fellows Programme to add a focus on environmental solutions. Kevin was the primary instigator of Big Bang Philanthropy, a group of funders that worked together to direct more money to those best at fighting poverty. Over the years, Kevin's taught hundreds of social entrepreneurs and other leaders how to approach impact at scale. Maybe just to start, if you can tell us a little bit about what you do and Malago, Kevin. Well... I'm a CEO of Malago Foundation, and we, we normally just call it Malago. Um, we are a private foundation. We are focused on meeting the basic needs of the very poor. And increasingly, that includes climate, environmental, and even conservation solutions. Um, we fund organizations that are focused on, on the same mission and who have what we judge to be a scalable solution and um, whom we think have the chops to deliver that solution to scale. And so we we have a a portfolio of about uh, 60 active investments, 60 organizations that we are putting money into. And, We're super lucky in that we're able to give unrestricted funding and we're able to accompany them long term as long as we see that that they are, in fact, on this on a a plausible journey to scale. Great. Can you maybe just uh, uh, explain what you mean by unrestricted funding and why does that matter? Well, unrestricted funding is. Oh, we like what you're doing. Here's some money. You spend it as you see fit because we have confidence in you that we're headed the same way. Um, and why it's so important is that they need the freedom to uh, make course changes. Um, they know better how to spend it than we do. And if we don't believe that, we shouldn't shouldn't actually be giving it to them. And it it leverages all the restricted funding they get and actually makes them better at delivering on uh, the various things <clears throat> sorry, that they've, they've received restricted funding to do. Right. So um, I, to, to, to just contextualize that, by and large, the, the funding they would be getting uh, in, in most cases would be uh, what called restricted funding, which would be targeted at, uh, and certainly in the grant uh, uh, part of the, the funding, uh, but targeted it very tightly to find where the money's going. Yeah, it might be restricted to one particular activity or one particular program or one particular project or one particular uh, place, or even, you know, it gets really stupid when it's restricted to one particular item or or uh, 
um, set of items. So um, for us, we just cut through all that. And it's sort of, is the organization delivering a solution that we really care about? Um, and if so, here's the money to do it. Yeah, maybe come back to that a bit later and some of the questions around funding. I'd just like to get a sense. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, the target uh, group that you're you're trying to help the the uh, you know the poor, I guess, the poor globally. I mean, what would you say? How much progress has been made when it comes to you know helping the poor or the current state of affairs? Is how do you look at it? Well, I think that you know you, people like the late uh, Hans Rosling and and um, that genius behind our world and data. Uh, Max Roser, they've shown very, very persuasively that that huge progress is being made. Um, I noticed that more progress is being made in some places than others, and Sub-Saharan Africa is not seeing a lot of the same. Is seeing progress, but not at the pace that that some other regions are. Yeah, yeah, and. Um... We're, we're clearly facing a, a, a series of interlinked environmental, social, economic problems of, of, of some time, over some time. What in particular is on your mind, Kevin? Well, um, I'm becoming more and more obsessed with this notion of scalable solutions and that if you have a lot of solutions that prove to be scalable, the result of a lot of them going to scale is this um, convergence into sort of second order scale, second order uh, impact that really starts to affect whole systems. So um, I think about it more in terms of, is there a solution in front of me that seems high impact and and likely to scale to great impact um, over time. And the bigger collection of those we can create, the better. And when it and there these solutions are really about winning rather than losing more slowly. Um, and especially in the you know, projects just aren't going to do it anymore. Hopscotch projects all over the place aren't going to do it anymore. And diffuse programs that aren't really committed to scale aren't going to do it anymore. And what is going to do it is scalable solutions and organizations that are um, utterly committed to getting those solutions to scale, whatever it takes. Yes. Yes. Now we've talked before, but just for for, uh, people who may be less familiar with the world of social entrepreneurship and so forth, when it comes to these solutions at scale and so forth, what what do you think? Why 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 is uh, social entrepreneurship important? I mean, what's distinctive about it, and and uh, what role do they play? Do you think? Um, I mean, it's a re- relatively recent, uh, I guess, innovation in a way. Uh, you're able to just give a, a kind of overview of what you think the the, the particular distinctive uh, contribution that that social entrepreneurs can make. Well. To, to do anything like that, you've got to define it. And I define a social entrepreneur as somebody with a good idea about change who wants to build an organization to take that idea as far as it can go. And um, that definition describes why it's so important. We 
we knew we need new ideas, but even more, we need capable organizations to help those ideas, to make those ideas realize their full potential. And so it doesn't, it isn't really anything um, that is only a narrow niche. This is anybody with a good idea who really wants to fulfill the dream of that idea having its full effect over time. So you can sort of join that train anywhere you want. I think the 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 sense of of these founders with new ideas is really important because it becomes potentially a vast and efficient lab for the whole social sector and what we need to to really work on is the ecosystem that effectively helps those ideas grow and get to scale and that ecosystem doesn't yet exist in part in big part because funders aren't really accountable for impact and aren't driving the sort of ecosystem you see in the commercial sector where everybody's focused on profit and because everybody's focused on the same thing you end up with a machine that generates it really effectively yeah and i suppose just setting again in the context traditionally maybe uh NGOs and charities would have done that. And, and what, what do you see as being the distinct, uh, I guess, uh, quality that, that a social entrepreneur brings in the, compared? Um, that, that isn't a real distinction. In other words, social entrepreneurs can't solve problems on their own. They just, they start things to get the ball rolling. And then, the the single most important concept that we try to uh, use and promote is this notion of the doer at scale. So the the founder has an idea. They turn that idea into a systematic model. They prove that out. They replicate it. They show that it's scalable, but they can't deliver it on their own. They need other organizations to take it up and replicate it themselves for it to actually achieve any meaningful scale. And so that doer at scale question is really important. And there's only three potential doers at scale. It's it's either lots of businesses or lots of NGOs or governments. Um, and we wrote recently, we, we, we looked, took it a little deeper into the role of, of NGOs, which includes what you just call charities, and looked at their, tried to take at least a, an initial look at their track record in scaling up the mo- ideas and models, solutions of social entrepreneurship, or social entrepreneurs. And um, it's not very good. And increasingly, we're seeing um, governments take up some of these those ideas, uh, especially if they're particularly designed for governance, and governments are included in their evolution. And there are some business models where profit and impact are well enough aligned that they really can spawn industries that that serve the needs of the poor, although I'll say there's less of them um, 
than we think, and the impact investing industry is is a mess. So they don't advance as quickly as they should. But in the end, we're wondering if is it just the market and governments that are the real routes to scale for social entrepreneurs' ideas? Should we be even thinking about the NGO sector as a way that things really scale up? Um, right now, it's a question we're but struggling. But very different cultures. But they're very different cultures, the organizations. And I suppose that's something I'm trying to get at in the sense that, you know, I, I just even including the word entrepreneurship, you get, it gives a sense of dynamic, you know, changing, driven in a way which maybe um, culture of some of the larger NGOs or, or, or at least you'd associate with that maybe. So there could be a kind of uh, not a good culture fit between the kind of dynamic growing organization and and the you know maybe the culture of some of these larger uh, NGOs well yeah i see it a little differently in other words you you have a given idea and you you become you know the so the the you found an organization that initially has to become a lab to to really flesh out that solution and figure out how to make it into something systematic that could be replicated to scale. And so in that R&D stage, you're a, you're a lab, you're entirely a lab, but then you've got to figure out how replication of that happens. And so you become more of a factory replicating your own solution, but one factory can't, can't satisfy the, the need and so eventually what happens to happen is a whole bunch of other organizations need to become factories churning out replications of your solution. And so, you know, where does entrepreneurship end there? I don't know. It's organizations actually have to have to evolve through those stages if they want to be effective. And they they may be more entrepreneurial in nature at the beginning but eventually they've just they've got to be really systematic replicators and then ultimately recruiters of other replicators so i I don't think of entrepreneurship as some unique thing it's more of a it's more of a uh almost a personality approach a personality trait and an approach that really gets things going yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that the question uh, of of profits and profit of you know profit seeking is is um, interesting as well in the sense that um, when you want to scale or, or bring other people on board to uh, run with your ideas and so forth, uh, having a profitable product or service or model presumably will help in some ways. Um, and yet, as you say, this big question at the heart of it is, you know, to what degree profits and impact are aligned and, um, you know, how, how, what percentage or how many of the, the big problems we're trying to solve, you know, are aligned with, with profits. And, and you do hear stories of, you know, organizations that start with an impact kind of mission and end up becoming more profit oriented. And I suppose there's, you know, uh, ideas of impact first. What's your sense? I, 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 I think you're, you're, uh, the way you view profit has changed over time. Um, now you you're in in 
indifferent in some sense, whether it's a profit or a non-profit. But can you just talk a little bit about where profits fit in? Because I suppose that some people might say, well, hang on, if you're really dealing with the very poor, you know, should there be profit at all? Oh, well, that all depends on the doer at scale. If you want to scale up via the market, then profit really matters. And so if we're looking at a for-profit uh, investment, we have fairly simple heuristic that looks like kind of a Venn diagram, which is it's got to have a big addressable market. It's also got to be profitable enough to attract imitators. It's got to be an attractive business or it's just a one-off business, which isn't a, that isn't about scale. Scale is about creating a whole fleet of businesses that, that, that um, embody the same solution. And then in order for profit not to get it off base, impact and profit, um, impact in the lives of the poor and profit need to be aligned so that the more profit you generate, the more impact you're generating and vice versa. And that's a pretty rare quality, but you have to have all three. And so if you think of that center of that overlap, that three circle overlap of the Venn diagram, that's where Milago is trying to find uh, for-profit organizations, and it shrinks your pipeline quite a bit because those are unusual. Um, and and when you find yeah. one, it's like a precious gem that you need to get to the point that it's worthy of investment of real money uh, defined as money seeking market rates of return. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And and you you mentioned that um, the kinds of organizations you're looking to fund now. Uh, are dealing with a broader set of issues maybe than 10 years ago, including conservation, including climate. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that plays in? I, I know your singular lens and uh, dealing with the poor. How, 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 what kind of uh, projects, organizations, and, and, and can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, we've always had a portfolio that, that is focused on scalable solutions to the various issues of of poverty and what it takes to get people out of poverty, be it livelihoods, agriculture, education, health. Um, but then, you know, another basic need of the poor is safety. And so we found a scalable solution to sexual violence in um, slums. Uh, we found an approach to a systematic approach to making roadways safer in India when we found out that most of the burden of, of this carnage on the road in India falls on the very poor. Um, we've taken on some infrastructure where it's shown that the right bridge in the right place in Rwanda makes a huge difference in terms of community prosperity. And in fact, you can kind of get a government to take that very systematic approach to um, building the right infrastructure in the right place. Um, and then climate solutions, you know, Milago is too small to really make any huge impact in, in climate. But at the same time, we felt like we needed to get involved because it's affecting everything else we do, especially the smallholder agriculture that is the underpinning of most still the underpinning of most African economies. So what are you seeing there, Kevin? 
what are we seeing? We're seeing things that change land practices a lot. Like if you if you use farmland differently, if you uh, manage grasslands differently, you can sequester huge amounts of carbon. And so, silviculture. What's that? Yeah, and things like that. Is it called silviculture, silver pasture mixing? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different things you can do, and and um, you know, providing economic incentives for people to manage per a specific approach that sequesters a lot of carbon um, can accomplish enormous things. Um, you know, another thing we're doing is supporting indigenous people to manage their own forests and create their own future on their terms. So that involves making sure that they have tenure and control over their lands, but it also means at the same time helping them develop, helping them uh, achieve their own aspirations and needs in terms of education and, and livelihoods and health. So from, from keeping forest standings to getting carbon in the ground to um, finding new ways to motivate uh, uh, corporates to to minimize their emissions and get to to zero and negative emissions. Any solution we can find that looks like it fits our rubric of scalability, we're trying to get involved in. Um, if what we have to offer in terms of our um, teaching and money prove to be useful, yeah, I, that's very interesting. To what degree are there projects, you know, you mentioned the trees, the indigenous people keeping carbon in the ground. Um, how scalable are, are they? Um, hard to generalize, I'm sure. But uh, dealing with smallholders and so forth, um, it's just interesting to see how, how you think, you know, projects can be scalable. Yeah, well, it's it's... Scalability is actually, you can systematically look at it. So a scalable solution has to have a systematic model that can be uh, replicated efficiently over and over again. That model has to be, have to have proven impact. It has to be clear on who the doer and the payer are at scale. So who's gonna replicate it at really big scale and who's gonna pay for that replication. And if you know those, then you can systematically look at whether this is big enough. In other words, are there enough places where this solution would work to um, that there's a, you know, that, that the scope and the potential of the idea is great enough to be interesting? And is it simple enough that that doer could do, be it NGOs or government or business? And is it cheap enough that the payer would pay, whether it's a cook stove that a mom has to decide whether she's willing to pay for or a community health worker system that a finance minister has to decide is cost-effective enough that they want to put it into policy. So big enough, simple enough, and cheap enough are tools that help us understand finally whether a systematic model um, is really part of a scalable solution. 
And are you seeing more social entrepreneurs looking at these areas, you know, climate change and, and related climate kind of questions, uh, and, and, and also uh, the interest of NGOs? I know you, you've raised some questions about their, their actual uh, track record of, of, of you know, supporting and scaling uh, these solutions. But it, do you feel there's momentum? I mean, firstly, at the level of the social entrepreneurs, are there um, you know, motivated, skilled uh, uh, entrepreneurs keen to you know are you seeing good good projects is is i mean i know your particular focus is on on on, on scalable projects but do you feel there's some momentum there well we've been doing um you know we have two fellows programs looking for um social entrepreneurs that we think have scalable solutions and the one we've been we've had for many years is the reiner arnhold fellows that have been focused on poverty solutions and then we started having the Henry Arthold Fellows focused on, on the environment. And increasingly, we don't see those as different, but our experience in conservation and the environment and climate are, is um, you know, only about five years old. And I will tell you in those five years, either we've gotten better at looking or there's a lot more, but we're just seeing a much bigger pipeline. Um, coming into our process. Right, that's great. That's great. And can you talk about how the kind of funding you provide? I mean, you mentioned uh, and, and explained that it was unrestricted, but this uh, idea of being able to fund over a period of time and and the mix of of grants and uh, how how you and, and equity investments, presumably as, as uh, in the in the for profit area. Well, if it's a non-profit, then we're giving unrestricted funding based on our assessment of whether we're still persuaded there's a scalable solution and that organization has what it takes to get it there. And we get in when we believe that. We stay in when we're still persuaded of it and we get out when we don't buy it anymore. And for for for-profits, kind of a little different where you know you you provide equity or debt depending on what their needs really dictate at a given point in time and then you're you're kind of done with them you know you 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 put an equity stake into something and you're not reevaluating it at regular intervals to see if you put in more it's more like you you bought it and watch it we don't go on boards. We don't take a real activist role with them. So, um, and sometimes we might do a second round of equity or debt, but mostly we're about early stage organizations and getting them on the path to scale. And if the thing really works, the market will take care of its its um, its eventual path to scale. And what would you say is the balance? Your portfolio of for-profit and non-profit. It's about eighty twenty. Non-profit. It's just it's right. just you know as I described that that kind of uh, approach to screening. Um, it just turns out there aren't that many for-profit solutions that will scale up to serve the particular population that we're focused on. Which brings up the question, <laughs> and I know you have uh, strong views on this, and uh, which you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, 
we, that seems to be tremendous. Well, uh, I'm not sure. Well, yes, momentum <laughs> uh, in in the world of impact investing, and, and certainly a lot of rhetoric and a lot of a lot of uh, talk and and, and movement um, and monies indeed uh, going into funds and so forth. What's your sense of how 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 uh, how much of that money is really getting to? Uh, uh, the kind of social entrepreneurs. I mean, I suppose that the projects that you you work in, in particular, but more generally, um, this, it does seem to be an area where there's a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of optimism and talk. Well, increasingly, I just see it as there's for an idea, for a business idea that truly benefits the poor, to get to problem solving scale it eventually needs to become worthy of and attract real money, which is risk-adjusted market rates of return money. And so I think of that as real money. And then there's free money, which is grant money. And then there's cheap money, which is what I think impact investing money is supposed to be. It's supposed to be what gets you to real money. And so ideally, I love to see it when there's an idea that has huge potential in our view, um, for impact at scale, which is to say we think it's profitable and we think profit and it potentially profitable and profit and impact are well aligned. Well, we just want to get it across the finish line all the way to um, where it's worthy of real money because that's the only way it's really going to take off and benefit the the um, enormous numbers of people that we want to benefit. And so we'd like it to, if, if, if the business model or the, and or the technology really isn't proven, but seems to have huge potential, we're happy to give it free money to get it as far across that desert toward the finish line as we can get it. But at some point we need cheap money to move it the rest of the way, i.e. impact investing money. And there's never as much of that as as people have been led to believe there is and it you know to strain the desert analogy it's almost as if it exists in oases here and there but it's hard to find and those oases are hard to get into and take a long time and meanwhile you might die of thirst in the desert so that you look at the reason why there's not as much money as all the hype would um, lead you to believe and increasingly, I believe it's it's because it's all huddled on the market rate of return end of the returns spectrum. So it's not really high additionality money. It's just it's 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 almost indistinguishable from uh, private equity money that's just trying to do a little better things. And the only study I know was one in in Latin America where they looked at the self, uh, self-reported self um, kind of returns that, that so-called impact investors were interested in. And it was almost all market rates of return or approaching market rates of return. So I'm just convinced that of the half trillion dollars people say is out there, most of it isn't cheap money. It's it's real money disguised as impact investing. And so it's just not that useful or interesting to us. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I did see that um, 
a solar company which I interviewed uh, a few years ago has apparently raised nearly two billion dollars in funding. So uh, presumably that would be more like that kind of uh, uh, end of the the returns well, or ex- expectations. Let me be super clear: um, if they are really serving the poor and raise two yes. billion dollars of real money, I think that's fantastic. It's just a question of who are they, who are they really serving? My I would be surprised if they weren't serving the middle class, but I don't know. Well, this is a question I was going to ask as well. You're saying that you know you've got a particular uh, focus on on the poor, um, but you're also you know very embedded in the community. So you're you're talking about your experience, but presumably applies. This is something you're seeing more generally. This uh, lack of you know, as you say, cheap, cheap cheaper money. Does this impact the kind of projects that 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 uh, get developed or that get you know that social entrepreneurs you know try and uh get off the ground that 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 they if if they if that's where the money is they 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 try and deliver projects that will satisfy what the funders are looking for well everybody always tries to satisfy what the the payers are paying for um yeah but i mean the kind of projects that they're doing you know that the projects that are well, just take for example where you're focused on getting you know you're drawing in as many people because if there's not the funding for it they're they're going to go where the funding is to some degree well that's usually a little further down the line entrepreneurs have an idea and they want to explore and um build out that idea and they seek money and if there is money they get a little further and if there isn't they don't but they tend to they tend to have an idea and they really fight for that idea and that is one thing that characterizes them but when you start to get to the replication and scaling and and you're you're just looking at organizations that do what they are what they can get money to do and they tend to fight more for money than for ideas and that's really the opposite yeah. at the beginning they're fighting for ideas and they're trying to get the money to drive those ideas. Yeah. What about hybrids, Kevin? Um, I hate most hybrids because they're just trying to offload some costs onto a nonprofit. And because the two elements really can't grow at the same time, they're too complicated and unwieldy to scale. But the one time it makes sense for a for-profit to be um, associated with a nonprofit is if there are sort of research costs where you could develop a, um, a technology that might serve the whole sector, but is also central to your business model. So for example, we've got a, a very interesting emerging um, fuel and cookstove company that might actually provide the breakthrough that we need to get high quality stoves to um to the poorest people which has always been the the huge problem with that whole industry is the the cheap stoves aren't good enough and the good stoves aren't cheap enough and so they may have a real breakthrough in terms of a business model but they're not quite there with the stove and if they can actually um, bust through that challenge, 
they can open up the whole industry. And so it makes perfect sense to provide them with grant money to do that, that really critical R&D that's going to make things better for a whole sector, but is also a key element of their business model. And so there may be things like that um, in a lot of business ideas where some uh, grant money going to a well-designed nonprofit can both help that company and help the whole sector. And then it makes sense, but they're not really a hybrid. They're like, they're a business that actually has a uh, grant funded lab that, that is more open source and benefits the entire sector. That's very interesting. Very interesting. And um, do you see much business model innovation? Are there new uh, uh, business models or merging business models that are innovative or interesting? Because presumably that's something that's transferable as well. Different kind of, uh, certainly at the earlier stages. I mean, you've mapped out the, 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 the you know, uh, payers uh, later in the, the scaling, as it were. But um, in the early stage, are there anything interesting? I, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Are there are there interesting for-profit models? Well, you were talking about the business model of this particular organization, and you know, presumably for social entrepreneurs, they're operating in challenging environments where you know the simple idea of selling something to someone might not work. You're talking about you know different ways of structuring that, and part of the organization might be just generally. Is that something that you 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 think about business models, or is that not this well? You know, we don't we don't generate ideas or business models. We look for where they're emerging. We're like a VC firm or something. Um, sure, sure. But are you seeing? You know, is there innovation there? Are there models emerging that you that that you know that would apply different kind of funding structures or payment structures or you know within an ecosystem dealing with a problem? Um, yeah, it's just any business eventually scales from customers as the payer. So you might you might need uh, debt and equity investors. You know, you m- you might need equity investors to really get going. You might have an ongoing need for working capital debt, but eventually the thing is powered by customers. And we're just seeing we're seeing more and more solutions that are more and more realistic about about um, about that whole picture and you know yeah. the especially technology has enabled a lot of new has generated a lot of new ideas that are more scalable in part because because they are technology enabled but they still have to work and you you uh an organization or model that's not very good uh, with technology layered onto it is just a not very good solution that's digitized. <laughs> yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about impact? And uh, as, as you said earlier, that having one way of measuring or one simple goal in the world of for-profits uh, can uh, have tremendous advantages, uh, impact, uh, challenging to measure um, traditionally. What's your approach? 
Well, it's increasingly for us, we, we finally realized that that rigorous ongoing measurement of impact is a drag on the bottom line and uh, nobody's really going to do it in the for-profit sector. It's just not what, what drives it. So our initial uh, analysis of the alignment of profit and impact, it becomes critical. So what we want to do is prove to our satisfaction that, that what drives profit also drives impact and that is ironclad. And so we can have some confidence that if the thing really does take off and makes a bunch of money, you're going to see a bunch of impact. And that's probably, um, that's the only point in which we can apply the kind of rigor that really gives us confidence. And down the line, that's, that's not going to, if that hasn't been established at the outcome, it's probably never going to happen again. And how well established is that idea? I mean, in the industry? The yeah, the connection between profit and impact. Oh, and uh, I, I don't think. Clarity around. I, don't, I, I think it's pretty rudimentary. I think, I think investors tend to, to sort of look at it and buy it, and, and then everything becomes about the business and the profit. Um, and so if that turns out to be right, great and if it doesn't it's it's um not so great <laughs> so uh it, a lot depends on how rigorous impact investors are and how uh how rigorously they demonstrate that alignment between profit and impact and how clear they are and what they mean by impact you know what for whom and um and sometimes it works out really, really well. And a lot of times it doesn't because most, a lot of the time investors are buying a story and not, not anything that's been proven. Have you any thoughts about what kind of changes would help uh, have the impact sector, investment sector more focused or uh, enable more funds to, you know, to go in the, the areas with the higher risk, I suppose, risk-adjusted returns? Well, I mean, it really strikes me that if you're not giving cheap money, in other words, if you're not concessionary in your in your quest for impact for moving it across the desert to where it's finally worthy of real money um then you don't care about impact that much you're not you're not you're not uh making any sacrifice for it so for example we give free money to nonprofits is mostly what we do and the only we give them reason we give them free money is because we're looking for impact. So if they don't have impact, we've totally wasted our money. Um, if you're providing cheap money, the difference between what you could have made with that money and what you're gonna make that money is essentially philanthropy. It's essentially a subsidy. And so if you don't get impact for that subsidy, you've wasted your opportunity cost there. So you should really care. But for-profit investors, if there's no impact, they, they, don't, they don't have impact skin in the game, except maybe emotionally. 
end or or in terms of branding but they just they don't have that impact skin in the game so they're just not it's not structured that they would care as much yeah yeah how long have you been in this kevin in this in this world and and what's next for Malago? you mentioned you know the uh, second string of uh of, of fellows the more focus in the the environmental the climate kind of side of things um your work and clarity around scaling and uh your thinking around that is very interesting what's Malago? up to next or what are you up to next well we want to advance this notion of scalable solutions and continually understand from ourselves better and better what that means so that we can be more systematic and looking for it and managing toward it and then making ourselves transparently accountable for it um, and then leveraging that transparent accountability to say to the sector, you can be accountable for this and funders should be accountable for impact because that's where most of the, the ills of the sector come from is the fact that, that we funders are not accountable for impact and try to try to drive the whole sector forward in terms of scalable solutions and funder accountability. Um, that's a dream. That's where we'd like to go. I don't know quite how to do it yet, but that's what I'm thinking about a lot. It's day, day by day, every day, focused. Um, well, I wish you the very best of success with it all, Kevin. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and uh, telling us uh, about your great work you're doing at Malago. And I wish all the best for Malago. Well, uh, thanks, Fergal. And, and thanks for what you you're setting out to do with this podcast if you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda we think you'll enjoy aaron stibby's book ecolinguistics language ecology and the stories we live by which has recently been published in a second edition this groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder more ecological world it's supported by a free online course called the stories we live by just type the name into google and you can find it thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting it would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media you can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.